of Luke, Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, beginning at verse 29 through 38. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It acts for a miraculous sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now one greater than Jonah is here. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are good, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are bad, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted as when the light of the lamp shines on you. May God be pleased with the reading of his word. Please be seated. Light. Light is a common and important motif or theme uh, within the Bible. From Genesis 1-3, when God said, let there be light, to Christ who came as the light of the world, to the last chapter of Revelations 22-5, there will be no more night, there will be no need, the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Light reveals. We know that when the lights go out, we grab a flashlight to light our way so that we can see what's happening. In Scripture, the word light can also mean truth or knowledge or spiritual purity, especially when it is applied to Jesus. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. But people love darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. So we begin in verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It acts for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was as a sign to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now again, first we must ask ourselves, Why did Jesus call them wicked? And we have to remember, going back to verse 15 and 16 of the same chapter, but some of them said, By Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Now, even though Jesus had just healed the mute man, they were not satisfied. In fact, by asking for more and greater signs, they were actually hoping to justify their unbelief. They wanted bigger and better signs 
uh, hoping that they eventually could bring Jesus to the point where he could not produce a sign, and therefore they would be secure in rejecting him as the Messiah. Therefore, Jesus labels them wicked. Second, we must ask, what is a sign? In the Bible, the word sign uh, has different shades of meaning. It can be uh, that by which a person or a thing is distinguished from others, or a portent, an unusual occurrence, transcending the common course of nature, such as a miracle. And therefore, a sign points to something else, either because it resembles that thing or it is confirming something. And Luke simply says that the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. Because he doesn't define it any further, some believe that what Luke is referring to here was Jonah's preaching. And that is because down in verse 32, it speaks of his preaching. However, any confusion over what it really represents is removed if we flip over and look at Matthew's gospel. And there in Matthew 12:40, we read, He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is pointing to what happened to Jonah being in the fish's belly as a sign that points to what will happen to him. Now, a sign does not have to be identical to that which it points. But it must be similar enough that we can make the connection. One point of debate over all this sign is whether was Jonah dead or alive in the fish. Those who say he is dead contend if it points to Christ and his resurrection and Christ was dead in the tomb, then Jonah must be dead in the fish. And they claim that this is substantiated by Jonah's use of the word Sheol, which is Hebrew for a place of the dead. But as one author points out, first, although Jonah did say, I cried by reason of my affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and thou heardest my voice. This does not necessitate an actual death. The word Sheol is used many times of a physical location, the abode of the dead, but is also often used to describe a state of dread or feeling as if one could die. Psalm 116.3 says, The sorrows of death compassed me, and the pains of Sheol got hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. And also, for great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest Sheol. Psalm 86.13. Now David is very much alive when he's writing that. All right? So his soul was not in the lowest shield, but he felt that it was. It's very similar to the New Testament language about baptism. In Romans 6, 3 and 4, we read, Well, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too live a new, may live a new life. 
And when we're baptized, no one believes that we must actually physically die and be buried. Baptism is itself another sign that points to what is transpiring and what happened uh, with regards to Jesus. And so we should understand that as we read Jonah, he's using figurative language and that he felt that he was dying, he was close to death, that he was in a grave, that he was buried in the ocean. And the fact that the fish spits him out alive on the shore is miracle enough to have caused the Ninevites to listen to his message and respond to it. The verse in Luke actually does not say anything about life or death, but points to time, three days and three nights, as significant. Of course, from our perspective, on this side of the empty tomb, we know exactly what it's talking about. It's speaking about the resurrection of Jesus. But the sign has strong similarities to the actual event. Jonah was thrown into the sea. And to the ancients, the sea was a frightful and terrifying place of chaos. Jesus was thrown into the chaos of humanity. Jonah was entombed in the great fish. Jesus was laid in the crypt. Jonah was buried in the sea. Jesus was buried behind the tomb. Jonah was rescued and raised from the fish. Jesus was rescued and raised from the tomb. Jesus declares in verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah was a prophet, but he was a rebellious prophet. He didn't want to go to the hated Ninevites. It would be like asking one of us to go to ISIS and preach the good news. So he took an, it took an extremely extraordinary intervention by God to bring it to pass. But at the preaching of the word of God, we are told the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, put on sackcloth, which was a sign of repentance, and the city was spared. The people of Jesus' day should have likewise responded in repentance because something greater was there. Jesus' message was greater. Jesus' miracles were greater. His promises were greater. His person as the Son of God was greater, and yet they failed to believe and repent. And therefore, the Ninevites, Gentiles, mind you, to whom God sent his prophet to preach repentance, will rise at the last day and judge that generation that is disbelieving Jesus. Those who received so little light but responded to that light and faith while these Israelites witnessed the casting out of demons, the healing of all manner of diseases, the lame walking, the blind seeing, the dead rising, they had received so much light, and yet they remained blind and unresponsive. As John 1.11 states of Christ, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Jesus moves on to a second example in this section. The queen of the south arise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. The Queen of South is a reference to the Queen of Sheba. Yes, there was a real person, the Queen of Sheba. Growing up, I always just thought it was a phrase. You know, who do you think you are, the Queen of Sheba? Well, it was a Queen of Sheba. <clears throat> the land of Sheba was located where Yemen is today on the Arabian Peninsula. She is known in Christian, Jewish, and Islamic writings. In 1 Kings 10, we have the account of her visit to King Solomon. She had heard of his fame and his relation to the name of the Lord and came to test him with hard questions. She also brought a caravan of treasures, as it states, never again were so many spices brought in as those of the Queen of Sheba. And Solomon's uh, wisdom and riches overwhelmed her. And as she was getting ready, she said, she said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. But I did not believe these things until I came and saw with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report I heard. Praise be to the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. And then she returned to her country, which was about 1,400 miles away through the desert. The point that Jesus is bringing out here is this. If this woman who heard of Solomon's greatness and his wisdom, would travel 1,400 miles to see if it was true, this generation stands condemned because I'm standing here right in front of you and you don't get it. Right in the midst and you are refusing to believe what you see and hear. And this queen, who is both a Gentile and a woman, will rise up and judge this wicked generation. Jesus then moves on in verses 33 to 32, uh, 33 to 36, excuse me. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now this this paragraph may seem unconnected to what we just talked about. Note Jonah and the Queen of Sheba. But as one author notes, actually, it is closely related to the foregoing. For it indicates the nefarious dispositions from which sign-seeking arises and at the same time urges those in the crowd to take care, at least they stand condemned, by such faithful persons as the Queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh. To understand this little almost parabolic statement of Jesus, we have to step back in time and realize that to the ancients, the eye does not solely function in allowing light in, but also by allowing the body's own light to come out. It was called the emission theory. 
they thought light generated from inside and projected outward as well. The eye is the conduit or source of light <coughs> excuse me, that makes sight possible. Thus the expression, your eye is the lamp of the body. It's shining out. Think of it as your eyes being flashlights when the light goes out. Shining light out so you can see. And Jesus is using this to speak spiritually. He's not speaking scientifically. But what they understood. Once the Spirit of God lights the lamp in our hearts, He has given us faith to believe. God's grace illuminates our heart with His light, and that light opens our eyes so that we can now see and perceive and embrace the truth before us where otherwise we would be blind to it. We stand alongside believers witnessing the same thing, and they refuse and we believe. Because they don't have the light of Christ within them to illuminate the truth that we are witnessing, but believers do, and they see it, and they perceive it. They are in the dark, and they think of it as their batteries are dead. But the believer's batteries are charged. And this is solely an act of God's grace to his elect. Jesus was comparing and contrasting those who had the light within them and those who did not. A healthy eye, or literally it's a single eye, means an undivided eye. It means one devoted to and loyal to Christ and his truth is a healthy eye. Other times in other passages, Jesus uses this illustration about a light shining, meaning our witness to others. That's not the point here. Here it is more having to do with the light within which shines out and enables us to see the truth, perceive the truth of what is happening. A healthy eye can see the truth before it. A healthy eye gives direction to life. But an unhealthy eye has no light. And therefore the person remains in darkness and is unable to apprehend the truth before them and he stumbles. How you see reality determines whether you are in the dark or not. If we perceive goodness, that goodness will radiate or shine outward from our hearts and from our minds. If we allow our eyes to linger on evil, we will be affected by that. And then the darkness will be great within us, and only darkness will emanate from an unhealthy eye. So Jesus challenges his listeners and us with the words, see to it then that the light in you is not darkness. There's no one more blind than he who has an eye that will not see. It's the critic's eye that refuses to accept the truth, but must seek to deny or disparage the truth so that it can remain in darkness. Jesus was not a traveling magician performing for the people. He would not cast his pearls before swine at some cheap show. 
His miracles had a purpose. It involved faith and was involved authenticating the power of God within him. Many people followed Jesus because of the miracles, but not all of them believed the miracles. John 12:37 tells us this. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. A faith based only on visible signs is at best shallow. At worst, it's no faith at all. What does Hebrews 11:1 say? Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. Faith is anchored in the person of Christ Jesus, not his miracles. In John's Gospel, chapter 9, we have the account of Jesus healing the man who was born blind on the Sabbath by placing mud on his eyes and telling him to go wash. You probably remember it. The Pharisees heard of this and they brought the man in for questioning. And some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. And they kept asking this man how he came to see, and he kept telling them, The man Jesus did it. They kept telling him, The man Jesus did it. How did you get here? The man Jesus did it. The Pharisees even brought his parents in to identify him and tell him how it happened. And they said, he's old enough, ask him. They asked him, the man Jesus did it. So they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they hurled insults at him. You see how blind these religious leaders are. They threw him out of the synagogue. And then the account continues. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? He asked. Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see. And those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and they asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of your sin. But now that you claim you see, your guilt remains. And Jesus judges them because they saw, but they didn't see. They claimed to have sight, they saw, but they didn't believe. 
They had hard hearts that caused them to walk in darkness. There was no light inside so that they could see and perceive the truth. And they would disparage the truth. And they would rail against the truth. They did not want to hear the truth. They could not accept that Jesus was who he claimed, even in the face of a miraculous sign. Some had accused him of doing it in the power of Beelzebub. Others tempted him for more signs. But some, because the light was within them, saw that it was by the finger of God that he was doing these things. A person's heart can be so dark against the truth that they cannot bear to acknowledge that truth. And the fact is, Every one of us was in that situation. And the fact is, everyone's heart is dark and everyone's eyes are blind. And yet everyone is held accountable for being in that condition. Romans 3 states that dreadful position. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have altogether become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We were all there. And every individual is accountable for that refusal and will face the penalty of that refusal. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And we were all content in our darkness. And that is why it was necessary for God to intervene. Intervene in our salvation. What must first happen is that by the power and grace of God, the stony heart must be removed. And a heart of flesh must be given. And theologically, we call that regeneration. What we might call born again by the Spirit who brings life and light. Second Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. God made it happen. That's why Paul was commissioned to preach and he was instructed in Acts 26:17, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place on a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. For in God's sovereign will, the preaching of the gospel brings light. It births light within us. Second Peter 1.19 We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as to light shining in a dark place. But one's eyes must be opened. Jesus closes the section, Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be completely lighted. 
as when the light of a lamp shines upon it. Believers are called to live a life full of light. Ephesians 5, 8 declares, You, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. It's interesting in that verse, notice what it does not say. It does not say, you were in darkness, but it says, you were darkness. And on the other hand, neither does it say, you are in the light, but rather, you are light. By grace, through faith, we are now children of God and adopted into his family. And the old self is gone. And we are no longer sin, uh, slaves to sin, and we're in bondage to sin, but we are now new creations in Christ. Our past has no claim upon us any longer. It has died in the old self. We now have the ability to say no to sin and temptation. But we also have the ability to obey His Word and more so to desire to say no to sin and to find out what pleases the Lord. That's our desire. Everyone who has Christ in them has seen the light. That was part of Christ's mission. Those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. When by the grace of God that light dawns in our hearts, we are given light. And that light emanates out, as it were, from our eyes and we can see. And every one of us can probably mark a day when we were an unbeliever and the next day we were a believer. Some it's very dramatic, like the Apostle Paul. Boom, I'm on the road, bam, I see the light. Others, it was more subtle. But almost every believer I've ever known, they can say, on this Tuesday, I was still in darkness. I was darkness. I wasn't a believer. And yet on Wednesday, I believed and I was in the light. And I was light. And that's the light that dawns in our hearts and gives us light to open our eyes and we see Jesus and we recognize the truth. We need a Savior. I am a sinner lost. And our desire is for Him and the salvation He offers. So let us live as children of light, which means to live like Christ lived, in goodness and right living and truth. And that's basically a short list of the fruit of the Spirit found in Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We cultivate these virtues Not that we might be saved. Rather, it's because we are saved we cultivate these virtues. The more we cultivate that fruit or re-energize our batteries, the light within us shines brighter and we are be able to see better, more clear the truth before us. And we are better able to follow our Lord in this life. 
question is, have you seen the light? You won't unless the light of Christ shines in your heart. And he tells us, call upon the name of the Lord and his light will shine in you and you will be saved. Do it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in you and praise you. Thank you for your grace to us. That that light has dawned on our hearts and you opened our eyes to help us see the need of that we need a Savior. We need Jesus. We thank you for such grace, Lord. We did not merit it. We did not earn it. We don't deserve it. But you gave it to us. Lord, help us to live in that light and to show forth Christ in how we live. Help us, Lord. Find out what pleases you and to seek to live that way. That our light might shine out. That others might be drawn to it. Well, thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.